Coming up in this episode. So what we have done is using this chemical called SSO um, to inhibit CD36. We stop fat from coming into the, the cells, the cardiomyocytes, and, and try to forcibly switch metabolism to glycolysis. Because via Randall's cycle, when you upregulate glycolysis, you get a downregulation of fatty acid oxidation. And therefore, to see if we can correct the metabolic inflexibility uh, in the diabetic heart. Interesting. So just to step back and give context, yeah. cell life, they want to maintain homeostasis. And there's an energy requirement for the cell. Mm -hmm. So if you're forcing a shutdown of fatty acid oxidation because there's no fat coming in through CD36, mm -hmm. that implies that to recover that energy deficit, yeah. There needs to be some other substrate to be used. That's right. And glycolysis provides is that energy. That alternate energy substrate. Yeah. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Lat Mansour onto the HVMN Podcast. And he's not just expert in metabolism, he's also the new research lead at HVMN. So excited to introduce you to the HVMN podcast community as well as to welcome you on the team. Thank you very much, Jeff. Glad to be here. Likewise, we're really glad to have you on board as well. Let's start from the very beginning. Um, what's your background? What are your key interest areas? What led you into getting a PhD in physiology at Oxford? Uh, what got you interested in metabolism? Wow, that's a long story. So let's let's start with, um, you know, born and bred in Malaysia. Um, and then I did my undergrad and master's in biotechnology. Um, my undergrad was in Nottingham University in the UK. And uh, master's was from Columbia University in New York. And then I worked for about a year and a half with a pharmaceutical company in, uh, up in New Jersey called The Medicines Company, where they really focused on cardiovascular health at that point as well. And then I went back to UK um, and started a PhD in um, cardiovascular science, cardiovascular um, metabolism. So what got me into uh, metabolism as a whole, I think growing up, I was um, kind of overweight all my life pretty much until... Um, I was in my second year in undergrad where I started to exercise and I started to learn more about fat metabolism. In fact, my undergrad final year project was in um, mathematical modeling of uh, fat adipose tissue metabolism. So then um, I lost a bunch of weight. I lost about, I think, 20 kilos. And, and then when I went to New York, um, I learned further, um, you know, in terms of like working out, I joined the gym. And then I also did my master's thesis on sarcopenia, which is muscle loss due to aging and how exercise works as an intervention, you know, uh, comparing endurance exercise versus resistance exercise to um, prevent sarcopenia. And then because of my background in sort of metabolism and physiology, um, and I started working in the clinical trials for the medicines company as a clinical trial coordinator, and then subsequently as an analyst, um, I learned more about cardiovascular health. My late father, um, he passed away from stroke and he had a heart attack a few years before that. And my mother's side has quite high prevalence of diabetes in the family and, and obesity as well. Obviously, we all know that, you know, having diabetes increased your chance or your risk of having a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. And sort of exploring that link between diabetes and cardiovascular was, you know, of a personal interest to me. 
And um, that is how I got started in uh, Professor Kieran Clark's lab in Oxford. Uh, Professor Kieran Clark, she led a research group called Cardiac, Cardiac Metabolism Research Group, CMRG. And that was where I did my DPhil, looking specifically at the metabolism of the type 2 diabetic heart um, uh, in hypoxia. So I'm looking at hypoxia as a subcomponent of ischemia, which is the lack of uh, blood flow to the heart. Yeah. I, I think that touches a couple interesting paths that we'll, we'll, we'll walk towards. I think one, you mentioned hypoxia. Recently, that subject won a Nobel Prize in medicine just a couple weeks ago, which is really exciting because I know that, that one of the investigators that was awarded was an Oxford fellow. Yes. And second, you mentioned uh, diabetes and overall metabolism what under Karen Clark's group, which obviously is our key partner mm. behind their ketone ester work. So it's interesting crossover from hypoxia and Nobel Prize winning work, as well as uh, entry point into metabolism through the lens of a disease model, but ultimately it's still kind of tying into why ketones and ketosis is an interesting metabolic state. Yep. But even but before I go into more of the scientific topics, I'm just curious in terms of your personal story. So did you grow up wanting to be a scientist? Did you? It sounded like a lot of your focus in physiology and medicine really came while you were a, a young adult. Yeah, so it, I, so from an interest point of view, I, I have always been interested in science, always been curious about, you know, how things work. But I think in terms of evolving that into a more personal interest. It definitely started when I started exercising, learning more about metabolism, losing the weight, and seeing how people can potentially change their lives, you know, by changing their lifestyle or by changing the diet, by including certain things in the diet, or excluding certain things in the diet. And I think that was sort of developed throughout that undergrad days um, and then up till now and, and trying to, um, apply what I know theoretically into practical um, aspect of my life. Yeah, that's something that I've just been thinking more about if you look at just paths of people's lives and pe in people's careers. There's a couple critical moments that nudges you in the right direction because if you had a really great physics teacher or an astronomy yeah. teacher versus a really great biology teacher, yep. maybe you'd be here with a cosmo cosmology PhD talking yeah. about black holes, right? I was very close to doing a PhD in biology in space, actually, uh, in Madrid, in University of um, Autonoma in Madrid, but somehow that fell through. And then I ended up doing master's in biotechnology instead in New York. Yeah. So, yeah. I think just from, from me personally, I think I told you the story where when I was graduating from my undergraduate program at Stanford, I had a option to either join Facebook as a software engineer, and this is mm -hmm. around 2011, do a PhD at Princeton in computer science, right. or start my first company. And there were all- Viable options, yeah. Phenomenally awesome yeah, options, absolutely. right? Like at the time, they all sound kind of fun, but like being your own boss seemed like the most fun. And mm -hmm. like, I could probably always maybe do a PhD or probably always go work at a big software company. Yeah. And then took the shot there. And that's unfolded like a very interesting path to yeah. be here you know, having my own podcast, working with Zon, the producer, talking to you, working in, you know, and I think a very exciting area of ketosis and, and metabolic yeah. products and research. And that that would not be where I was if I did a Princeton PhD or yeah. I worked at Facebook, right? Yep, yep, yep. And if I'd done anything else, I wouldn't be here, yeah. you know, being a research lead either. So yeah. from my um, sort of 
perspective as well, um, a few things that that changed me in terms of inspiring me to do a PhD. Um, because at the end of my master's, I I have concluded that I do not um, want to do a PhD. I do not want to stay in the lab. I do not want to do like you know wet lab work. Um, but then joining the medicines company sort of allowed me to meet a lot of individuals uh, who inspired me ultimately to apply for a PhD at Oxford. Um, a lot of them have got PhD, but they're also a very entrepreneurial and uh, business-minded, and, and that inspired me to apply for a PhD, and yet also be able to be in the business side of things. Um, so I think that that played a big role in, in me going back to school after one year and a half working in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, no, it's super exciting. I mean, let's talk about Oxford. I know that, uh, you know, our dear friend, Brianna Stubbs, our previous research lead was in the lab. Yes. So you, my understanding is you didn't necessarily work directly with her, but she was as part of the overall yeah. cardiovascular research group, broader research group. Yeah. Your, your advisor's advisor just recently won the Nobel Prize. So right, right. I, I, I say tongue in cheek, you're a grand Nobel Prize uh uh, pedigree researcher. Um, can you talk about, uh, you know, what was what was it like? You know, how long ago was it? I started my DPhil in 2011. Okay. And I finished it in 2015. Um, so like almost a decade ago when you started, like seven, eight years ago. Yeah, yeah, almost. Um, so um, Brianna and I, we, we did overlap, uh, you know, during our times in the same lab. Um, we did sort of crossover when it comes to like, you know, changing ideas about some experiments and some protocols and all that. My supervisor uh, is also Lisa Heather. During her first fellowship, uh, when she was supervising me, her mentor is Peter Ratcliffe, who got the Nobel Prize announced last week for his work in hypoxia and hypoxic, uh, hypoxia signaling and how cells sense hypoxia or, or oxygen sensing and the um, mechanism of HIF, which is hypoxia indu inducible factor. So, so just for clarity and my understanding, yeah. when the body, when an animal, when a human is in hypoxia, right. there is an oxygen sensing pathway mm -hmm. that's governed by HIF. And I think the way I've come to think about it is that if you have like mTOR, yeah. which is a nutrient sensing pathway, right. HIF is kind of like analog for oxygen sensing pathway. That's right. So when mTOR is triggered or upregulated or downregulated, a number of things happen, right? right. mTOR builds right, muscle right, or right. autophagy. And that was like a Nobel Prize winning mechanism discovered, I think, in 2016 by a Japanese scientist. So it's very interesting to see that today you have a oxygen sensing pathway That's right. being awarded a, a Nobel Prize. Yeah. So what are the effects of a HIF response? Okay. HIF is always um, present in our cytoplasm. In normoxia, which is normal oxygen level, HIF is constantly being broken down. So it's constantly being targeted by ubiquitin um, proteasomal degradation. So with the presence of oxygen, that's what's happening. So that inhibits it from going into the nucleus and start a, a whole gene expression that reacts to um, hypoxia. I see. So when oxygen is absent in hypoxia, for example, the HIF does not get the broken HIF, down. The HIF escapes the degradation and therefore translocate into the nucleus and then binds to this uh, region called HRE, uh, HIF response element. And that 
kickstarts the gene expression um, that leads towards whatever cascade that helps with the adaptation to hypoxia. Okay, so what is upregulated then? So you so, you so get glycolysis, increased glycolysis. Yep. So you probably uh, you get probably increase in glutes in taking in more glucose okay, because you, you can't increase glycolysis trans- okay. without having glucose. So more glucose transporters. Yep. More there are quite a few um, other other uh, mechanisms that get uh, um, upregulated as well, which is uh, surprisingly quite um, opposite to diabetes and in the pathogenesis of diabetes is almost the opposite um direction and that is why we we started studying um diabetic heart in hypoxia implication for longevity i think it's still quite early in the stage to 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 speak of you know i think longevity studies are, are very interesting in the sense that you can't do a fully a a decisive longevity study without following that that study for a long time and because of that because the practicality is you know sort of limited as well i just bring that up because if i see a parallel between mTOR as a nutrient sensing pathway i mean it's not obvious that they have an implication to longevity i mean mean, you can look at it this way right when when a person ages um they might have more complications with uh vascularity and and uh decrease in oxygen or you know some form of blockage that causes hypoxia in certain organs I see. right so uh, how adapted so, someone is to hypoxia may play a role as to whether or not they develop those uh hypoxic related complications i see so, so hypoxia uh, can play a role in like say cancer stroke cardiovascular disease in a lot of these different diseases that's why i think um they're Nobel price um worthy because you know that sensing mechanism is is so quick uh, uh, to act, and it's so useful in so many different applications and so many different disease um, uh, cases that it becomes a fundamental understanding as um, to how these d- disease progress or how can we potentially intervene with these diseases. Lisa, my supervisor, has regular meetings with him and um, a lot of our publications has sort of gone through him in terms of looking at the results, looking at the study design, and he has given some feedback um, on, on those studies as well. So that's why he has um, sort of, he has, uh, we have acknowledged him in our papers as well. His original paper discovering or describing the HIF mechanism was rejected right. by nature, which I think is, I think it's like the challenging, interesting part of doing something sort of at the cutting edge of technology yeah. understanding, right? Half the people or more, most people think you're wrong. Exactly. And then let's see what the data shows. Most people think that you are not with the norm and therefore um, you're not doing something right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, it would be almost uh, arrogant to say that we know what how everything works. I mean, if you look at history, every paradigm has been disrupted by a better paradigm. So that's right. I am, it would be, I think, overly arrogant to assume that our current understanding of physics, biology, longevity performance mm-hmm. is defined and is true yeah. nutrition right like nutrition is a space that the the human system is designed to continue to eat to allow themselves to survive and procreate that's, so right. that's some, something that our species has been thinking about forever and we still we do not have a defined answer of what is the best way to eat mm-hmm. yeah so let's not open that can of worms just yet let's talk about your thesis work um sure. let's tie dive into hypoxia why do you think was so interesting how did your slice of working on hypoxia and your novel contributions of space tie into the overall understanding of hypoxia. Mm-hmm. In the, the conditions of lack of um, oxygen, which is hypoxia, um, our body need to adjust and need to um, switch 
its metabolism to adapt to hypoxia so that we continue to survive because there are certain um you know organs in the body like the heart or the brain it cannot survive without oxygen for a long for an extended period of time there's no rest for these organs where it's continuously working throughout our lives until we die essentially so but then the understanding of how these certain cells um sense oxygen and therefore create a cascade that jumpstart a, a whole mechanism that adapts to it has not been clearly illustrated or described before so i think that that is why uh, peter ratcliffe uh, greg zamenza and all they got the Nobel prize for it to to really like illustrate the mechanism at which you know hif is is being activated or hif is um how hif is responsible for expressing genes and and translating proteins that are related to the adaptation of hypoxia my defil project is that i looked at diabetic a type 2 diabetic rat model so uh, if i i have to give an overview the first part is to um develop a type 2 diabetic rat model um so that's what i did um so, so a type 2 diabetes model for retina didn't exist before or uh, it it did a lot of different models um existed before they've got genetic knockout models they've got different form of uh, diet models but um we tried to um, improve a model that was done by Srinivasan um, in 2005 um, by using a different strain of rat and combining streptozotocin, which is a drug that uh, partially impairs uh, pancreatic beta cells that impair the insulin secretion mm -hmm. and combine that with high fat diet to induce diabetes within about three weeks. So we saw the hallmarks of diabetes like increased glucose uh, blood glucose or um hyperinsulinemia uh, hyperinsulinemia um or or increased uh, fat um Interesting. Uh, mass why do you need to create a new model from what we want to look at which is um i and the techniques that we're using which is isolated heart perfusion a lot of good models are in uh, mice models and for for i mean we can do heart perfusion with mice models as well but for the sake of you know, it's it's much easier to do rat rat heart perfusion because it's just because it's bigger, and also um, obviously when it's bigger, you get more tissue and you can run more tests and and all that as well. In terms of logistics, a lot of it um, with regards to um, the the practicality of the model, it was very um, it was much better if we can use a, a Wista rat model. So I see. So basically, there's a consideration around. Uh, amount of tissue size yeah. between rat and mice and yeah. the better models happen to be mice models or mouse yeah. models yeah uh, other rat models um they almost uh borderline type 1 diabetes which is too severe from for what we want to see because we want to sort of almost look at early stage type 2 to like mid-stage type 2 Got um, it. it is fairly new to create a new model so that sounds like exciting part one yeah 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 so part two so part two put the um, rats in um, hypoxic chamber so at about 11 percent oxygen and uh, sea levels around 20 20 is there a altitude equivalent to 11 percent um and that's pretty i mean cutting them in half is pretty drastic that's that's hypoxia. very low so i so for the first week i had to um gradually decrease from 21 percent all the way down to, to like 11. do you know off top of your head like what is being at mount everest is i'm that not entirely sure i mean i have it written down but uh, not on top of my head i don't know so zil just put up the number yeah. saying that 
So at Everest Summit, you get around a third of the oxygen availability. Right. So that implies if it's twenty percent, yeah, is sea level. You get right. around six, seven percent. Yeah. So you are bringing these rats close to Everest, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then um, looking at how their um, cardiac metabolism would react to hypoxia. Okay. And uh, because we know for a fact that in hypoxia, uh, the heart would upregulate glycolysis because glycolysis pathway is oxygen independent. In order to provide continual energy supply to the heart, it needs to somehow create ATP, which is energy, from somewhere, from the field, from the substrates. And uh, upregulating glycolysis in that hypoxic um, environment um, would provide the best option, the most efficient option uh, to create ATP independent of oxygen. Cool. But we also know that in diabetes, there is metabolic inflexibility where diabetic hearts, they can't switch between substrates that easily. Mm. So that's the hypothesis. So that was what I was trying to look into. Really fascinating because we talk a lot about metabolic inflexibility through more of a nutrition perspective on this program. So right. it's interesting to hear that you're studying metabolic or looking at metabolic inflexibility as something to measure within a in a hype in with the stress of hypoxia within a diabetic heart which is yes a, it's like a it, interesting same, stacking yeah same wordings but different i think different terms Emphasis. to describe different yeah. things yeah. yeah um and then the third part was looking at acute hypoxia where during isolated perfusion i cut off oxygen and then reoxygenate um these hearts and look at the metabolism okay so then measure both fatty acid oxidation and glycolysis and see what's the difference there cool what we have found is that uh, the diabetic hearts, they are metabolically inflexible. Therefore, uh, normal healthy hearts would upregulate um, glycolysis in both chronic and acute hypoxia. But the diabetic hearts, uh, because of the high fat content in the system already, upregulates the PPAR alpha in the diabetic hearts. Therefore, they have an, a, a sort of sustained elevated fatty acid oxidation. Um, compared to normal healthy hearts. So that's why in the final part of my DFIL, we used a CD36 inhibitor called SSO. Can you describe what a CD36 inhibitor is? So CD36 is um, a transporter, a fat transporter that transports fat into the mitochondria to be oxidized and produce energy because fats can't um, get past that membrane yep. uh, and it needs a transporter. So CD36 transport fat into the cell. Mm -hmm. And then, so that cells can then enter mitochondria to be oxidized uh, to create energy. Mm -hmm. So what we have done so this there- this is fatty acid oxidation. It's a required transporter for fatty acid oxidation. Yes, because the, the um, fatty acids, they can't um, penetrate the bi uh, phospholipid bilayer. Therefore, yep. it needs a, a, a transporter right. to, to transport into the cell. So what we have done is using this chemical called SSO um, to inhibit CD36, we stop fat from coming into the, the cells to do cardiomyocytes and, and try to forcibly switch metabolism to glycolysis. Because via Randall's cycle, when you upregulate glycolysis, you get a downregulation of fatty acid oxidation. And vice versa, you increase fatty acid oxidation, you will decrease glycolysis. So we're basically forcing fatty acid, fatty acid oxidation uh, 
to go down via inhibition of CD36 and therefore to see if we can correct the metabolic inflexibility uh, in the diabetic heart. Interesting. So just to step back and give context, yeah. cell life, they want to maintain homeostasis and there's an energy requirement for the cell. Mm -hmm. So if you're forcing a shutdown of fatty acid oxidation because there's no fat coming in through CD36, mm -hmm. that implies that to recover that energy deficit, yeah. there needs to be some other substrate to be used. That's right. And glycolysis provides that energy. that alternate energy substrate. Yeah. Just to step back where like all these types of substrates have different types of transporters, right? We talked about CD36, which is is necessary for fatty acid oxidation. So mm -hmm. this is fatty acids going through the Krebs cycle. Mm -hmm. You have glycolysis, which is you have glucose transporters yep. that bring glucose into the cell and then feeding the Krebs cycle. Yep. And then our favorite metabolic substrate ketones yep. goes through the MCT monocarboxylate transporter mm -hmm. that and then that ketone goes through mm -hmm. and, and and feeds the the Krebs cycle. Yep. Because glucose is a more of a available substrate there, mm -hmm. it makes sense that you would push metabolism towards glycolysis. But mm -hmm. I think the next question, if we are putting on the ketosis hat, if mm -hmm. the ketone's available, right. it'd probably be an interesting deflection or shunting towards both glycolysis and ketosis, right? Yeah, yeah. That would be interesting as well because we know that from different studies that ketone bodies in the in the bloodstream or in the system, it does increase the um, cardiac output and cardiac efficiency. Yep. So they, they measured hydraulic work by um, the heart over the oxygen consumed. And with ketone bodies, um, they managed to increase the cardiac efficiency similar to insulin, sort of, sort of. Uh, yeah, this to is that the Cyto paper, 96. Yes, 95, yes, 95. that's correct. Yeah, and I think just for context for the audience, this is one of the key papers that a lot of researchers and podcast people cite as why ketones are metabolically advantageous. You yeah. get an energetic boost or output with mm -hmm. ketones as a substrate. Yes. So I want to just make sure to close the loop on your thesis. So it sounds like you had the model of a diabetic rat, and then you started looking at hypoxia. Chronic and acute. Chronic and acute. And then you had an inhibitor to see how you can manipulate metabolic inflexibility. That's right. Or understand metabolic inflexibility in diabetes. Mm -hmm. What were some of the key conclusions or results from that? I mean, it makes sense from being an observer of the space saying that, okay, you found that diabetics are more metabolically inflexible. Right. Like what was like kind of the key contributions to the field there? The key findings that we found is that um, in uh, diabetics, the upregulation of PPAR alpha due to the high fat content in the, the so system. So let's, let's define PPAR alpha. So PPAR alpha so is an important. PPAR alpha is an important sort of gene um, that regulates fatty acid oxidation. Huh. Um, and we often see an upregulation of PPAR alpha, especially in the heart. There's different types of PPAR as well. There's PPAR uh, gamma, PPAR, PPAR delta, but in the heart primarily PPAR alpha is, is more um, readily present. And we saw an increase in PPAR alpha activity in the diabetic hearts because of the high fat diet that we feed the rats. This essentially overwrites the HIV um, response to hypoxia mm. compared to normal hearts. For example, what I'm trying to say is in hypoxia, normal hearts would upregulate HIF, um, hypoxia inducible factor, to upregulate all the enzyme and proteins that is relevant for hypoxic um, adaptation. 
Interesting. But in diabetics,、um, there is a blunted、um, reaction to hypoxia. So we were trying to figure out what is the mechanism, and one of the the things that was、um, one of the the theory that was proposed is that. The upregulation of P per alpha basically overrides the hypoxic、um, reaction. Super interesting.、Response. Yeah, I mean, I want to kind of jump in here and、sure. like, and, and this can be a little bit out of order, but I think in the context of a lot of our audience members who think of ketogenic diet, high fat diets, fasting is potentially beneficial for resolving、mm. metabolic inflexibility because you're like the the concern is overconsumption of carbohydrates or or,、yeah. or glycolysis. Yeah. But it sounds like in so what is the difference there? So it sounds like in the model that you created, there was a heavy reliance on fatty acid oxidation、mm-hmm. and not a lot of glycolysis happening.、Mm-hmm. So what, lower glycolysis, yeah. So what is the difference when in in the human context, we'll talk about having too much carbohydrate or sugar as the main driver of metabolic inflexibility? Inflexibility. The high fat diet we used was sixty percent fat. Um, and then about I think about twenty percent、uh, carbs, and then the rest uh, is uh, protein, protein.、Okay. and and others.、Yeah. So it's not like super keto, like five. No, it wasn't. It wasn't、okay. a keto diet. It was quite high in in carbs as well. So if you were not diabetic and you had a high fat diet、right. or keto diet,、mm-hmm. would that? Would you speculate that that would inhibit HIF response? Whether or not you're diabetic, the increase in fat intake would I would speculate that it would increase the P per alpha expression anyway. And the P per alpha、But、expression whether, downregulates HIF expression. Yeah, that that's that's one thing that um is in a sort of interesting point from a cardiology point of view or cardiovascular health point of view, where um in ketogenic diet um. People, while they manage to decrease the biomarkers or the hallmarks of diabetes, such as you know glucose or insulin and all that, and also they they lose weight, but they did see an increase in、uh, lipid profile. So it would be interesting to to really look more detail into that and look at whether this increase in lipid profile would be detrimental to the cardiac health. I see. So basically, what something、uh, a key takeaway that I'm absorbing from this conversation is that you're you're trading off different responses, right?、Mm. In the sense that it probably makes sense to reduce carbohydrate consumption if you're reducing insulin resistance, reducing inflammation, reducing some of these other biomarkers, but that might in return also trade off some of the HIF response, which are also beneficial. Yeah, definitely. I think. It's in, like you said,、um, you know, in the earlier in this conversation that that nutrition and、um, met- metabolism and physiology is an ongoing conversation, is an ongoing、um, evolution. Right.、Um, we're still trying to figure out, you know, if you take out, if you、uh, take out the carbs and you、uh, um, fit in more fats, you know, you get ketogenic diet and then you get some benefits of it. But then, you know, what about the other? Parts of the equation, you know, your body tries to compensate with other things, and, and yeah, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a super complicated can of worms because I'm just thinking like, okay, if you have upregulated P par alpha in a high fat diet, 
okay, you might reduce the HIF response, but can that reduced HIF response be recovered if you're a ketogenic or you have ketones in the system? Yep. And that's not something that I guess And then there are at. other layers that, that may play, come into play as well if you're exercising and, and, and that might you know, increase that insulin sensitivity or that might increase the, the HIF sensitivity. I'm not sure. Yeah. And then you want to add exogenous ketones into the, the play and then yeah. that would make things even more interesting. Yes. So it is kind of an open question in at the top end of performance. And I think yeah. hypoxia is like a super interesting model for it because it's oftentimes hard to tease out the differences in performance in a standard perfect environment. And yeah. hypoxia is like a very and, viable and, model. And also, you know, uh, it has been proven that ketogenic um, diet does work in terms of, you know, helping diabetic patients or overweight patients yeah. to reduce weight and reduce all these, um, reduce medications and all that. So it has been published already. However, you know, if the concern is hypoxia, I mean, how often will one get into hypoxic condition, uh, you know, uh, uh, over a long time? Depends on when you get the heart attack. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. where it's like interesting. That's where I think there's some nuance and subtlety the of the space. That I don't think people talk about a lot. Right. I think people talk about it's probably reasonable for reducing carbohydrate intake, being ketogenic to minimize a percentage chance of getting a myocardial infarction. Mm. But mm. post heart attack, yeah, where you are in a hypoxic state mm -hmm. and fatty acid oxidation is not optimal mm -hmm. because you need oxygen for that. And you get um, reactive oxygen species generation you because might, of lack of oxygen. Uh, might, must rely on glycolysis. Yes. But then I think the question is, if you can have exogenous ketones, can you replace the reliance on glycolysis as with ketones as an adjunct? I think that's just, again, another open area of research yeah. that no one really And that's understands. interesting as well because ketones... Um, are known to acutely decrease glycolytic rates by the action of uh, using PDK to to inhibit that, and and that reduces lactate production yes. from glycolysis. So so that's interesting in that sense. Like, would that be, be beneficial or detrimental yeah. in hypoxia? Does a body of benefits outweigh the potential negatives? I think is, is exactly. another way to think about it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's like we're teasing into like really the limits of our understanding of physiology, and then we when we stack on top of uh, hypoxia and different possible substrates. It gets pretty nuanced, right? Um, but let's going back to some of your key conclusions with the with your thesis work. Um, anything else that our audience would find interesting in terms of takeaways? Another thing that we found is that by inhibiting CD thirty six, we managed to increase glycolytic rates even in diabetic hearts in hypoxia. So we basically corrected that abnormality that we saw in diabetic hearts in hypoxia. That is a very interesting point in the sense that it may provide a new therapeutic target. However, because this the CD36 inhibitor that we used was irreversible, it was more of a proof of concept, if anything, um, than a potential therapeutic um, agent. I see. So, so it permanently but, blocked fatty acids. Yes, exactly. So it, while that is beneficial in hypoxia or in ischemia or in you know a heart attack, you, yeah. After that, you may want to, you, you want know, to some fat, you know, in the in the heart because in nomoxia, the fat burns about 60-75% of the energy um, is being, uh, is, is coming from fat, yeah. fatty acid oxidation. So the heart does prefer to metabolize uh, fatty acids over other substrates. Yeah, I think 
you think of diabetes, or I guess traditionally in the, I would say the low carb keto community, you think of diabetes as a glucose mm-hmm. problem. Yes. Which it is. Yeah. But I think the nuance that I'm gathering from this conversation is that it's maybe it's a metabolic inflexibility is like the, is like the core problem with it. If you can dispose glucose really, really well, that's not per se bad. Right. But the problem is that if you cannot be flexible, that's and where the, whatever. That, yeah. and you can't burn any, like whether it's fat or glucose, yeah. that's where like the real problems crop yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very interesting as well. And because type 2 diabetes has so many confounding factors um, as far as BMI is concerned, like body weight is concerned, yeah. as far as, you know, um, insulin resistance is concerned, infl- inflammation is concerned. There's so many confounding factors that may lead towards this disease that we call diabetes, but it may not be just one mechanism that is diabetes, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so um, it's really hard to tease out, you know, when we do a PhD, it's it's most often than not um, very much pigeonholed into one yeah. really specific detail and try to find that answer to the, the, the research question that we are asking. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because with ketone esters, with exogenous ketones, yeah. we have now this additional substrate, this additional metabolic substrate that once in previous paradigms, we would have to have a high fat diet to produce ketones. Yes. And now we can really All tease. Starved, yeah. Um, so we can tease apart ketones separately from just a high fat or starved paradigm yes. into its own substrate. Yeah. I, I hope that we as not just like you and I, but hopefully we as a community of researchers and scientists and practitioners of human performance and longevity can just really understand how to best use which substrate at which time. Because I think the model that you looked at, fatty acid oxidation was kind of in more of like a weight loss paradigm. It's like, yes, you want to ramp up fatty acid oxidation because that means you're burning fat. You want to like reduce glycolysis because mm-hmm. if you're not, if you're using more glucose, you're not burning your fat, right? So for folks that are interested in weight loss and like a lot of met- metabolic conditions, that's probably what you want to do. But in the case that you looked at where in hypoxia for uh, survivability in a hypoxic environment, well, you don't want, and this is like, I guess, more comparable to like a post-heart you attack model. You want to be model. able to switch that You want to be able to switch, which I think is a very interesting part of the conversation that isn't really well discussed or well understood, yeah. which I think is Because is, I think there's no linear way of seeing metabolism because it's always in a balance um, as far as substrate utilization goes in our physiology. And I think that's what interesting because our body um, adapts to different environment and different conditions that we put them through. And that is why that flexibility is so important. And everything comes into play to make sure, to ensure that flexibility is you know, tip top is 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 on point. Yep. Like exercise, diet, nutrition. Um, you know, sleep. Yeah, and- yeah you're just triggering me to just like I, I maybe someone has already defined this, but I'm just like creating a, a framework here. Yeah, maybe metabolic inflexibility is the root core issue, and type two diabetes is a subset of this core metabolic inflexibility where you're very metabolically inflexible at glucose. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because you, because like your glucose pathways are messed up because you yeah. have insulin resistance, all of that. Yeah. But the core, core root fundamental problem is that your body no longer yeah. can f- inflex between substrates. It's always the chicken and egg. Uh, you know, it's either it's like 
Are you, is it, does insulin resistance come first or insulin deficiency comes first? But I would I would just I would make a stronger claim by just observation of what is happening in society today that the metabolic inflexibility is primarily driven by glucose surplus mm-hmm. and therefore causing insulin resistance, therefore call, causing all the downstream impact of type two diabetes and all of that. Right. Some say uh, inflammation because of the high adipose tissue um, deposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, some say it's because, um, you know, genetics. Um, some say it's the diet that uh, triggers certain cascades of pathways yep. um, that cause insulin resistance. And then that sort of triggered the pancreatic beta cells to produce more insulin. And over a, a long time, that chronic um, increase, uh, the chronic positive feedback then caused the pancreatic beta cells to shut down yep. um, and then that caused diabetes and and a lot of times as well um, what they say is like by the time you're being diagnosed that you're diabetic uh, or type 2 diabetic you are pretty much 15 years um, post post like too late like it's 15 years in the making yep um, and, and and that is why it's so hard to pinpoint the exact mechanism that started it all together yeah so I, I would I directionally agree with you in the sense that Yes, it's complicated. There's like multiple effects, yeah. but if we can make takeaways yeah. to simplify for the general population, mm-hmm. like if you're not like some you know some athlete with some bespoke genetic baseline with some bespoke goal, probably reducing refined carbohydrate, yeah. going more towards a low carb ketogenic diet is sensible. Yeah, yeah. yeah would yeah. you, would you and, agree and with that? I agree with that. And and there are organizations or healthcare providers that utilize that method or that approach yep. to to deal with diabetes and they have seen quite promising results uh so yeah for sure uh, i think i think that's definitely uh one way of, to look at um solving diabetes cool i'm, I'm sure our audience will have a lot of interesting follow-up questions because i think we unpacked a lot of different cans there in terms of your thesis work hif hypoxia diabetics diabetes. ischemia as well as disease, yeah. teasing into some of the future uh research or ac- active ongoing research pipelines yeah i'm sure we'll have you back to help us break down some of those studies and hopefully maybe in in, in the upcoming future some of our own studies that that yeah. you're involved with so very excited to have you on board welcome to hvmn thank you really excited to introduce you to our our community and audience here pleasure If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.